bit of a rip-roaring story, Joshua. So there's lots going on, and some of those things are challenging as well, and today's a particularly challenging passage. I've uh, got the thumbs up from Kurt, uh, so I'm going to pray. Hopefully you've got your Bibles open there. We're in Joshua 7 and 8, most of our time in Joshua 7. But let's pray as we uh, look at God's Word together this morning. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thanks so much for uh, your Word that is, uh, is what lightens our eyes and our hearts so that we might know you and who you are. We thank you, Lord God, that it gives us direction as we seek to live life in this world. And we thank you mostly, Lord God, that it reveals who you are and your character to us. And so, Father, continue to um, speak to us now this morning as we open it together. Give us an understanding of your word and uh, a willingness to trust and obey you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can I say that I think uh, growing up I was a particularly sinful boy, uh, probably not as sinful as Kurt Peters, I know, but nonetheless quite sinful. Uh, and one of the reasons I think that is because of the phrase, and I, 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 still, I still remember my parents uh, saying this one phrase to me over and over again, I think that's because my behaviour meant that they had to say it a lot, and it was simply this phrase, be sure your sins will find you out. And they did, more often than I hoped. Uh, even though I was a slow learner, uh, I'm glad my parents actually kept reminding me because sin is dangerous. And not only for me, but also to those around me. Sin can be uh, defined, I think, simply as rebellion against God and his ways. It's ignoring God as our creator and master and assuming that we can kind of run our own lives however we want. Now, that kind of universal human attitude uh, is the cause of every evil, great and small, across our entire world. And God is against evil. God is a good God who created a good world. But human sin has caused deep damage and deep division. And so behind this book of Joshua is God's fight against evil. Uh, and because God loves our world so much, uh, because he loves us so much, he's deeply opposed to sin in all of its forms. We saw that last week with God's destruction of Jericho. Uh, our passage today, I think, is equally disturbing. But it's important because we learn a lot about God and his character. Um, we saw last week that God is a holy God. Uh, he cannot tolerate any form of evil. And can I say that what we believe about God really matters? Because if we get God wrong, then we will live wrongly. Now, there are plenty of people who, are, who will be happy to tell you uh, what they think God is like. But what people think God is like may actually tell us very little about what God is actually like. All it does is tell us what people like to think. And that may have little bearing on the truth. Only God can reveal God to us. And what is clear again in today's passage is that God is opposed to sin. Now, if, if last week's passage was disturbing for the non-believer, then today is perhaps more disturbing for the Christian because God will also punish the unfaithful and wicked Israelite, not just the Canaanites. Now, this passage makes it very clear, clear that sin has consequences. Uh, chapter 7 is, is right at the centre of this section, section of Joshua, which goes from chapter 5 through to chapter 8. 
Uh, and if Israel are going to continue as God's people in God's land, they're going to have to heed this very serious warning that we see here in chapter 7. Now we saw last week in chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, that the first thing God does after he brings them safely into the promised land is to renew his covenant with them. Remember, he had uh, rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He has uh, brought them safely through the wilderness. He's established Joshua as their new leader. He stopped the Jordan River flowing to bring them across safely into the land. And we saw also last week that the manna has stopped and they've begun to enjoy the produce of the land. And so God has been faithfully fulfilling every promise he has made. Uh, then in chapter 6, uh, we saw God gives the city of Jericho into their hands. Uh, and as they come off the back of this incredible uh, God-enabled victory, Joshua and his men move on to take the much smaller city of Ai. Uh, Joshua sends out spies. Uh, they tell Joshua that they don't need all of the men. God is with them. They can take it easily. But look at what happens from chapter 7, verse 4. Let me just pick it up there for you again. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? So Israel have managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. They fight, but they're defeated. And Joshua and his men are anguished and perplexed. They don't understand what has happened. We know, but Israel don't. And the reason that we know is because we've already been told in verse 1 uh, what is going on. Uh, let's just pick it up there again in verse 1 of chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Kami, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now remember that God had given them incredibly clear instructions about what they must do after they defeated Jericho back in chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. Let me just, uh, you, know, you might want to cast your eyes back there to chapter 6, verse 18. He says, But you uh, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And God's instructions are, are clear, and yet, despite what Achan had known about God, he sees these devoted things, and he knocks them off. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel, we're told. See, now it is Israel's turn to feel fearful. God's righteous anger over sin is the theme of this whole chapter. Uh, in verse 1, notice God's anger burns at Israel's sin. And then in the very final verse of chapter 7, God's anger is eventually turned away when their sin is dealt with. 
But for now, they're on the receiving end of God's anger. Uh, And he makes it very clear why in verse 11 of chapter 7, he says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed or violated my covenant. And Israel were defeated by Ai, not because their strategy was wrong or because they didn't pray, but because God's anger burned against them because of Achan's sin. You know, one of the things we need to notice as God's people today is that sin affects the whole church. Uh, Our devotion to Western individualism actually means that we struggle with this idea. Uh, But the New Testament is just as clear. So uh, the New Testament tells us that when one of us grieve, we all grieve. Uh, When one of us rejoice, we are all caught up in that rejoicing. And when one of us sin, the whole church is damaged. God is saving a people who are set apart to himself, not simply individuals. And if sin within the church is left unchallenged and unrepented of, then it will infect the church. It will damage our ministry, our witness, our relationships, and and on and on. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that the church can be free of all sin. I mean, our lives as Christians are a a constant battle against sin in our lives. But we're not to hide sin. We're not to ignore sin or excuse our sin. Rather, we're to confess our sin. And with the Holy Spirit's help, keep turning away from it. See, if you're struggling with sin, struggling against sin, good. That's not a problem. That's the normal Christian life. The real concern is if you've given up the struggle, if you've begun to tolerate your sin, or think it doesn't matter, or that no one really knows. But we do know the damage it causes. The unbridled tongue of gossip that causes division and disunity. The greed that gathers the world's possessions and experiences but will not invest in the growth of God's kingdom. The hidden lusts that keep a person spiritually stunted instead of growing to maturity and serving others. The self-centeredness that prohibits self-sacrifice and looking out for the needs of others. See, the church in the West has been in decline now for many, many years. And that probably shouldn't surprise us, given the way that so much of the church in the West has accommodated the world's ways. For those of us who are concerned with the growth of the church, well, perhaps our need is much less clever strategies or a cool facade or making ourselves more acceptable to modern culture. Just maybe our best growth strategy is for the church to confess its sins and turn back to God in repentance and take his word seriously which is why God is actually kind, can I say, to expose sin, as he does here. Uh, In verses 6 to 9 of chapter 7, we we read that Joshua is perplexed, he's anguished over their defeat, he's concerned about uh, the potential destruction of his people, but also, notice, he's he's concerned about the honour of God's great name in verse 9. Now, it's not hard to understand Joshua's concern for his nation's safety, but I wonder how many of us are concerned daily about the honour of God's name in our family, in our community, at our workplace, in our world. 
It might be worth some further reflection. But God in his kind mercy here reveals to Joshua what we already know. And that is that Israel has sinned by taking what God told them not to take. And the implications for Israel are devastating. Have a look at verse 12 there of chapter 7. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs to their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. There was nothing more crucial than the presence of God with his people. Israel's future actually depended on God's promise to be with them. And now that promise was under threat. Uh, I will not be with you unless, uh, or verse 12 here is, is the hinge verse, if you like, in this chapter. I will not be with you unless, or perhaps even until, you obey. Until you do what I said. See, Israel cannot presume upon the blessings of God. They depended on trusting him and obeying him. And in verses 13 to 23, God sets about exposing Achan's sin. Uh, God tells Joshua to uh, bring forward each tribe, one after the other, clan by clan, then family by family, until finally Achan is singled out and standing in the spotlight. And it's hard to imagine what Achan was thinking. I mean, at no point does he seem to think, I need to come forward and confess. It's not until he's standing there, caught red-handed, that he says, yes, I've sinned. I've taken a pretty nice coat and a bunch of silver and a bit of gold and I've hidden it under the dirt in my tent. Now, other people have noticed Achan's own description of his sin there in verse 21 and uh, noticed its similarity, if you like, to the sin of Eve in the Garden of Eden. Achan says, I saw, you know, beautiful cloak, etc. Then I coveted, then I took. It's so typical of sin, isn't it? We know it's wrong, but I must have it. It's just like Eve in the garden who saw the fruit was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. She saw it, so she took it. Even though God, who had given them everything, had said not to do it. And in the end, it's a lie. We believe the lie that God is not generous or fair. Or we believe the lie that God won't notice. And in chapter 8, verse 2, we see that Achan could have had it all, where God gives the plunder to his people. But he believed the lie that God wouldn't notice. Are you living with some hidden sin? You know it's wrong, but you have somehow convinced yourself that you can get away with it. You can't and you won't. God sees our hidden sin. Be sure your sins will find you out. And when God does expose our sin, as painful as that can be, it's actually an act of mercy, his mercy, toward us. Because hidden sin is the playground of Satan. But when we confess our sin, God will graciously forgive us and cleanse us from every sin we have ever committed. Well, the seriousness of Achan's sin was met with God's judgment in verses 24 to 26. And once more, we see that these are confronting verses. Now, right back at the beginning, when Adam and Eve chose to sin against God, death entered the world as a consequence and punishment for sin. 
in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the wages of sin is death. That is, sin pays a wage, death. And here God pronounces the punishment of death on Achan, his whole family, and everything that belonged to him. Now we read these verses and we feel the severity of the punishment. It may even disturb us that God isn't a little more tolerant. But while we feel uncomfortable about the severity of the punishment, the more disturbing thing is that we don't feel the severity of Achan's sin. God wants us to understand the seriousness of sin. Back in verse 15, he makes that very clear. Uh, so verse 15 of uh, chapter 7, it says, And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. See, what Achan did was no small matter. Not that any sin is a small matter, but God has taken Israel to be his people. He's removing the wicked nations from this land so that he can both deal with sin and set his people up in his place to be a holy and righteous nation who will honour God's name among all the nations of the world. And so to tolerate Achan's sin would be to derail God's entire purpose. And all Israel needed to understand that. In verse 25, the whole community was to be involved in Achan's punishment. And we read the result in verse 26. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And God's anger is turned away. But the great pile of stones is to remind the people of the seriousness of sin. And for every generation, including ours here today, who read this account, it makes for a jarring, a sobering read. It's meant to warn. And for those who read it, there can only be one conclusion that we can draw. God's anger burns against sin. And it's no different for the people of God or for the church today. Sin left unchecked is devastating. God won't be deceived. And no sin is really hidden in the end anyway. And anyone who understands that will actually be quick to repent. Sin for God, I guess, is a little bit like getting uh, dirt in our eye. I mean, you could have dirt all over your hands and even other parts of your body, and it's no big deal. But one speck of dirt in the eye, it just has to be immediately removed. That's what sin is like for a holy God. One speck of dirt in the eye, and you can't leave it there. But once Achan's sin is removed, so is God's anger. In the midst of God's burning anger, notice that there is grace there is mercy even for the worst of sinners. I mean, the very place where Achan was stoned, it was called the, the Valley of Achor, uh, which means trouble, a Valley of Trouble. It's a low point in Joshua's conquest, but the Valley of Achor represents, so it reappears in, uh, a little bit later in the Bible in Hosea chapter 2, um, and we're going to have it on the screen there to have a look at it. So Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, let me read for you. 
It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. This is God speaking. I will allure her, that is Israel, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And then I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Achor wants a, a door of destruction and trouble. God will make a door of hope. See, sin, sin doesn't have the last word in the human situation because God delights in mercy. Sin is devastatingly serious. But in the mercy of God, there is a way back. Now, ultimately, that mercy comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And it comes to us in the shape of a cross where Jesus took the devastating wrath of God's judgment for all human sin so that we might receive mercy, so that we might have a door of hope. If you long for mercy today, then Jesus is your door of hope. Come to him, no matter how serious you believe your sin to be, because Jesus paid it all. I mean, in the words of the song that I'm sure you probably know, sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. The wages of sin is death. But the rest of that verse in Romans says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, with Israel's sin dealt with, God's gracious fulfillment of the, his promises to Israel resume. Uh, in chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through to 29, God gives Ai into Joshua's hands. And while there's plenty more to be said, I want to spend uh, the remaining minutes of our time together this morning uh, in the final verses of chapter 8. Uh, where there are lessons, I think, for Israel and also lessons for us about obedience. And we don't always like obedience. Uh, we don't like being told what to do. Uh, we're always concerned that someone is perhaps taking advantage of us or that they can't be trusted. But obedience actually is something that is intrinsic to the Christian life. Uh, after the victory over AI, uh, Joshua gathers the people at a place with great national significance. Uh, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal are both mentioned there in verse 33. And they're at a place called Shechem, which is where 400 years earlier, 400 years earlier, God had promised Abraham that he would give. This is the place where they would live as God's people under his rule and great blessing. And here they are. This is a monumental occasion. And they do exactly what God, through Moses, commanded them to do when they get there. That is, they meet there, all of Israel, to give praise to God and to recommit themselves to obeying God's word, to keep his covenant. Here they are, the whole of Israel gathered. Now Joshua has written out a copy of the law of God. Let's pick it up if we can at verse 34. And afterwards he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded, that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Friends, God has proven himself faithful. He loves them. He's faithful to them. He has graciously fulfilled all that he has promised. Their whole future depended upon listening to God. And Joshua here reads all the words of the law to all of Israel. 
including foreigners who were already living among them. And the message is, you had better obey. The word of God must be centre stage. Not only if Israel's future is to be secure, but God's word must continue being centre stage in our lives. Obedience is the lifeblood of the Christian life. We're supposed to understand from Achan's sinful disobedience to God's word that God is <coughs> that God is not giving Israel the land of Canaan because he is anti-Canaan and pro-Israelite. No, God is pro-obedience and anti-wickedness. Do you value God's word? Do you know it? Do you obey it? My wife was in a doctor's waiting room last week and um, she was a lady had been watching her as she'd been reading her Bible uh, in the waiting room. And clearly, my wife's Bible is a book that's been uh, used a lot. And she walked over, got many different covers on it, that kind of thing. And uh, the woman walked over to uh, my wife at one point and simply said, well, that's obviously a well-loved book. What is it? And Leonie just simply said, it is. It's my Bible. Do you know? Do you trust? Do you obey God's word? Is it central to your life? See, our God, who has a track record of promise keeping, who can be trusted, who is kind and merciful, obedience to that God is a great joy and a great delight. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who hates sin because it is so damaging, but who is merciful, who is gracious, who is loving and forgiving and kind. We ask that you might forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, if there be within any one of us here today sin that we think is somehow hidden, and it may be hidden from those around us, but its effects will have an effect on them, and it is seen to you. And so, Father, we pray that you might help us in the struggles that we have to know that in Jesus Christ, all sin is forgiven. And by the work of your Spirit, you can help us to put it off. And so remind us again this morning, Father, of your great promises that are true, that are trustworthy, and lead us in obedience to them. In Jesus' name. Amen.